Welcome to The Dirt on the Past, a program of the Extreme History Project that explores the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past. Because, let's face it, Crystal. Yep, history very often isn't pretty, but it is so important to know. Because it is the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns that we have in the present. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, and me, Crystal Alegria, as we talk to archaeologists and historians who've been digging in the dirt and in the archives to uncover the fascinating histories that are not only relevant to today's issues, but which help us better understand how to address them. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History offices, and today we are discussing the mythology and the true archaeology surrounding runestones in the Americas and archaeological evidence of early Norse settlements in the Americas before Columbus. There has been a lot discussed on the History Channel in their series, America Unearthed, about this topic. This series features Scott Wolter, a geologist, and I would say a treasure hunter. And we're excited to get to this topic. But first, Crystal, how was your week? It was a, a really good week. It went really, really fast. And um, But I've been deep in the archives this week, which is always fun. Wow, to what get were to you do doing in the archives? Research. I'm doing a lot of historical research right now for a few different projects. And so I've been spending a lot of time in... Um, Online in newspapers.com, which is a great source for finding information Mm -hmm. about uh, people who lived in the West in the past, but also spending a lot of time in the Clerk and County Recorder's Office in the Deed Room. (laughs) So (laughs) they're getting to know me over there. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so for a few different projects, just doing a lot of research, which I love to do. So it's been a fun week. Are you making them lug heavy books back and forth from the back of the archives? No, I have to do that. Oh, (laughs) my arms are getting really buff because <laughs> I pick up these huge books that are like two feet by one foot wow. by like six inches. I mean, they're huge. That's and they're the, they're the deed records. And so they have them in a shelf and you have to pull them out and open them and look wow. and then put them back in. So every time I do that, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> these are so heavy. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, it's great. It's great fun. And and um, and getting to see these people's lives and better understand the history of these people's lives as I'm creating these histories is always very cool. Very so, cool. So yeah, I feel like I've been in like the 1910s for the last week. <laughs> it's, it's fun to trace people and have them pop up in all these different places and yeah. be able to look through that. I, um, I kind of miss that it's been a little bit since yeah. I've done something like that. Yeah. yeah. So so a good week. But how was your week? My week was good, and um, I felt like I was more in the entrepreneurial side of my brain. We yeah. have been trying to get our collection of inventory onto an Instagram or Facebook shoppable site. Oh, and let me tell you, yeah. um, a lot of it is like learning another language. Oh my gosh, yes, I can't imagine. It's been three of us in the back <laughs> kind of pulling our hair out and oh. working with a, a team that has some expertise um, who've been able to help us get stuff going. And we're excited to be on a new platform, being able to reach people and be able to provide some new content. So it's creative and fun once we get through the technological um, wow. part of it. So yeah. would people be able to buy directly from your right shop? Right on your phone. Uh, right off yes. of Instagram or exactly. something so, like that? So Crystal, yeah. I'm clearly on the older side yeah. of, of shoppers these days and I like to go to a <laughs> website. Too. I mean, I like a store, right? I like yeah, a physical I like store. I like to walk in a store. Which yeah. I know people do, but, um, but if I don't 
I'm not able to get there, and I know the merchandise. I'm happy with the website. Yeah. Well, young people, mm, not really going to the website anymore. You got to、yeah. show up in front of them on their phone in、okay. their feed. And I, we're sort of realizing this with having our two new locations, and、yeah. so we've been wanting to get there, and we're finally,、um, I would say, we're three fourths of the way there. So、wow. exciting! So、good. more to come.、Good. I know.、Good. So who knows? Maybe we can、yeah. get the extreme history shoppable online too with all your merch. I, I've tried that and failed, <laughs> and so, so I'm just like, I'm just going to wait for Nancy to figure it out, and then and then she can tell、I'll、me how my, to do my it. My people、yeah. over here,、yeah. exactly, because I, I am not the person to,、uh, yeah, I direct, and and someone else. Has to execute. Yeah, that's tough, though. Boy, I tried and I、mm. failed dramatically. It was really hard. It's humbling. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's、yeah. like, why can't I figure this out? I used to be technologically savvy,、right. but no I have、more. one word for you. <laughs> Shopify.、Okay. If you're going to have a, a POS system that allows、yeah. you to do it, that's the one you want.、Okay. And、um, I, I think that platform make is mostly idiot proof. So okay, I would,、right. if I had to do it all over, that's、Shopify. where I would be.、Okay. Shopify. All right, here we go. <laughs> Shout out to Shopify. Yeah, Maybe they'll become a sponsor. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we've we've <laughs> talked about our history and our in our shop in in your shop, which is commerce and our and lack、history. of technological、yeah. skills, which is why Steve is here recording us. Right.、Um, so let's get to it. Crystal,、uh, people、okay. have heard a lot about Vikings or the Knights Templar in the Americas, and and probably a lot of people have come across this on the History Channel series "America Unearthed." But there are also lots of websites people can come across, blogs, and.、Um, Books, many self-published books that also discuss these topics. Yeah, so we wanted to dive into some of these unsolved mysteries, dive into some of these treasure hunting, Se- seemingly、mysteries. unsolved mysteries, seemingly unsolved mysteries. Because,、um, as you know, any historian or archaeologist, when they watch the History Channel, which probably none really do <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Because it's just turned into a lot of these shows that are very challenging and very、um, unfulfilling for us to watch because they are shows like this American America Unearthed, and it's kind of this lure of the treasure hunter. And so we wanted to tackle that a little bit today and、um, do a few of these over the course of the next few months. Because、uh, Nancy, when you were teaching at Montana State University, you had a class. Yeah. And what was your class? Called. So I inherited the class from Dr. Mike Neely called Mysteries of the Past. Mysteries、so、of the Past. I would、yeah. teach it very often, every other semester, and we use this book by Kenneth Fader. And I really have to shout out to him; he's been on some blogs and、um, done some podcasting about these persistent myths that involve、uh, archaeological evidence, pseudoscience surrounding things like. The pyramids and Stonehenge and runestones and Vikings and、yeah. things like that. So, his book, which I want to mention, is a great resource for anyone who, going forward after this podcast, might be interested in. It's called "Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries: Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology." So, Kenneth Fader, F E D E R,、um, is the author. So, so some of the material we're talking about today will be drawing on the research he's put together in a. Very well documented, but very、um, easy to read, written for a general audience. Book. Yeah, and I remember when you were teaching this class, and you would often talk about these、uh, myths that that come、mm-hmm. up. And of、mm-hmm. course, you know, as a historian, as in in doing archaeology, a lot of people would always come up and say, you know. 
um, ancient aliens, you know, yes. <laughs> start talking to me yes. about things like this. And, and I'm, and, you know, so, and of course you had that happen as well. And then in this, this class, you were able to talk through these myths and really debunk some of them. So, so we thought it'd be really fun to do that on the podcast a little bit as well. And, um, so I know basically nothing about anything we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions. But I, I made Nancy. you, I made you watch the America you Under Earth <laughs> series as I did again, pertaining to the topic of the day. And, um, yeah. So let's, let's yeah. start by yeah. getting a little bit of your reaction to what you saw. Okay. So let's start with the Kensington rune stone, mm. a stone that was, um, supposedly found in 1898 by Olaf Oman under a poplar tree on his property in Minnesota. And this stone is carved with symbols that appear to be Norse ruins, which is really fascinating. And that is where the controversy starts, of course. So what do you know about the authenticity of the rune stone? And why is it such a controversy? Yeah, so, um, so you know, well over 100 years ago now, this stone was supposedly unearthed by Olaf. And I have no doubt that it was actually unearthed from beneath this poplar tree. Mm. But he was a man um, who was known to have in his library in his house books on runes, um, Viking runes and Norse runes and things like that. But he um, claimed that this was an authentic item. Now, he himself never profited from it. Um, It was sent off to people who had some expertise in studying runes and the languages of the people who used runes as the symbolic, you know, alphabet for for writing. And alphabet's probably the night they're not the right word, but I'm not a linguist. So in in looking at the history of the rune stone, most archaeologists and linguists had identified it as not ancient and a hoax Mm. pretty early on. And part of the way they did that was that the stone itself, the carvings in them looked very recent and to be made by metal objects that had these sharp edges and there wasn't um, any patina that had developed. Now, if Mm -hmm. this stone that had been carved with these runes was really from a Norse period, it, it claimed to be about a group of Vikings that came over to the Americas, left one group on the coast to watch their boat, and then some traveled inland and perhaps traveled to this place we now know of as Minnesota and a party went out to go hunting and when they came back 10 of their party I think it was 35 men all together had come over in the boat and the some had gone inland but when the hunting party had come back they found 10 men dead mm-hmm. and blood everywhere and they were very frightened so this is what's written on the stone, okay. that this happens this and that they're afraid and they put the year on it and then said that they buried their men there and were fearful, so they left. Okay. So what year is on the yeah, stone? It's, I think, 1392. Okay. And so apparently the runes that would have been used at that time or and or the languages, there's nothing that linguists can find that mm-hmm. would really conform to how this was written to what symbols and or what languages would have been used at that time by Northern Europeans. Also, um, the story itself is a bit circumspect, 
<laughs> because to describe what happened in that way and then say we're going to carve all this on a rock even yeah. though we're terrified for our lives because all these men have just been slaughtered and we're going to go to the trouble to bury and leave it here um and then bolt to the coast yeah. which was several days away i mean minnesota is a bit of a way to get all the way back out to where their boat would have been yeah. um it doesn't seem like anything else any Norse folk would have done or have written. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways Scott Wolter later tries to interpret this as maybe a land claim or something. Mm-hmm. You you watched recently, yeah, right, that yeah, part? Yeah. So there's that. So there's the age of the stone, um, the the lack of, of legitimacy of the runes themselves, and then the bigger picture if we zoom back. If we want to understand um, how an artifact could be authentic or not, there's a word we always use in terms of history and archaeology, Crystal, that mm-hmm. we want to understand it within its context. context exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so there is no context for this yeah. stone. It, it's just out in the middle of nowhere with nothing around it, no artifacts around it that really There's would, absolutely no artifacts. There's no evidence of, of this group other than the stone. No evidence yeah. of, a, of a massacre, no evidence a, of a camp. There's no skeletal remains of the, the folks that were... And these people would have been using metal tools and mm-hmm. might have even been wearing metal um, items on their garments or right. to keep their garments together. There's nothing... That and those things would have preserved. There's right. nothing except this one stone that they would have stopped after a massacre to take in all that time to carve. There's a right. there's just not a lot about it that rings true. But what we look for in archaeology is um, the weathering of the stone would be the best way to determine if it could have possibly had that authenticity of age. And so that's the yeah. first um, line of evidence that it doesn't look old enough and there's not enough weathering where the where the inscriptions are on the stone. Second, it was under a poplar tree, which seems like, wow, it must have been old. But um, when they asked individuals around there, they said it, that poplar tree was 40 to 70 years old at mm-hmm. most. Mm-hmm. So easily could have been planted there much earlier by Olaf himself and then dug up much later when he thought it was an appropriate time. Now, Mm -hmm. he didn't profit off this, but then another man came along and bought the rune stone. And really, that's where this story gets going. Mm -hmm. So in 1910, um, the rune stone is bought. And this individual, if I can find his name, he's the one who starts taking it around to um, some scholars till he finally finds one or two that thinks, eh, maybe this this could be really runes, and then he touts mm-hmm. that. So it sort of then hums along, and he gets some folks. You can go to Minnesota now, and you can go to Alexandria, Minnesota, and this Kensington runestone is on display. And there's a wow. lot of pride around it because there's a lot of folks that live in Minnesota who have ancestors that come yeah. from northern yeah. Europe. So it's, I think there's a lot of sense of, wow, wouldn't that be cool? So, yeah, so the gentleman is um, Heilmar Holland, and Holland purchased the stone from Oman in 1907, and it's from okay. 1910 on. Well, he did profit from that. 
runestone then a little. Yes, he profited because, right, he sold it. I don't know it. how much he sold Not it for, for a huge yeah. sum, but it was really Holin that profited off it yeah. as he went forward. Um, so he ignored all of the other scientists and linguists who proclaimed it a hoax, and he just kind of went ahead with it anyway. So it's this idea of just ignoring what other experts have said, um, finding one that disagrees with all of them and going forward with it. So there is very little evidence to suggest that this runestone is is anything but a hoax. And it was originally thought to have been evidence of Vikings coming. But how does Scott Walter talk about the runestone in America unearthed? Yeah, well, so just to back up a little bit, and we we talked in the intro about Scott Walter, but maybe you could talk a little bit about him. He's the um, main person on this show called America Unearth, which is a History Channel show. And he is, um, as you mentioned, a geologist and probably more of a treasure hunter than a geologist, but he's he is he really a geologist? Well, Nancy? he got Have his bachelor's degree. Us? We did as a class. We got very interested when yeah. um, we were reading about it in the book, and we all did some research. And he's actually come under a little fire for claiming that he's a geologist and trying to get an honorary master's degree because he took a couple of classes, but he has a bachelor's degree in geology. So he went okay. to college, which I don't know that you are qualified to say you are a historian, an archaeologist, a physicist, a geologist with just a bachelor's degree. Usually mm-hmm. to work in that field, you need to have an advanced graduate degree of some sort. Right. And you would say what that is. And he calls himself a forensic geologist, but he has no degree in forensic geology. Mm, okay. Not okay. not honorary or actual. So so there is that. And what he does to talk about the weathering of the runestone is he compares the weathering on the mica, the biotite mica of that rock that the runestone is with these gravestones in New England that are Mm. upright stones made of slate that have weathering on them. And he's looking at the dates of those. And these are different materials in completely different environments Mm -hmm. and in completely different contexts. Mm. Um, So there's no reason why you would randomly pick a gravestone in New England to compare it. It's not the same stone. It's an upright slab that's been exposed to the weather whereas the runestone was purportedly buried for a long time, a different stone in in different types of soil. And even if it had been exposed, it would have been different weathering conditions. So this idea that he's a forensic geologist is, um, it's one of those things that it can just flow right by you when you have the music and the drama (laughs) of the, the series going on, and it sounds very scientific. And then as soon as you actually write down what he says and what he did, that's nothing that a geologist would ever do to try to determine the age of a runestone. You would compare it to something that was the same material found in a similar environment, and even then it would only be relative. It wouldn't be something that would give you an actual um, century. It would give you a range of age, perhaps, in yeah. comparison. So I guess that's our first lesson to be learned in, in watching shows like American Unearthed is to look at the experts and see if they are, are actually experts in their fields. And 
and um and so and to dig a little bit deeper on those titles that are given in shows like this that's exactly what's so interesting about these titles and that's one of the first things we talk about in mysteries of the past if you're watching the history channel any of these kinds of things look very carefully at the title that's given under the name they often put individuals in a frame where they're in a very nice room with a lot of books behind them or a cathedral or sort of a lab whatever it is that they supposedly have an expertise in, and then they'll give them some sort of title. The title isn't always... Um, One one might say magnetometry or or, um, expert in... What is it? Um, Ground penetrant, not ground penetrant, magnetometer, not what's the one where you, metal detecting expert. Oh, metal detecting. Not even the things that we actually use in archaeology. So a metal detecting expert. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting interesting title. title. Um, (laughs) I think you or I could even be a metal detecting expert. (laughs) Absolutely. Just someone who has done it a lot. And that's not really a scientific method in the field. So, So we often want to look up who those individuals are. And then the bigger question is, why not go to an actual forensic geologist for that question? Why not go to bring in an actual linguist onto the show if you want to make a point instead of us following um, one individual who has a theory, you know? Right. Right. This gives them a chance to just say what he wants to say without a rebuttal. Yeah. You know, kind of coming back now to talking about the runestone. And so is there any relationship between the runestone or the really the Norse in general and the Knights Templar? Because we're going to get into talking about the Knights Templar a little bit because this gentleman, Scott Walter, who we just talked about, who's on this show, seems to talk a lot about the um, Newport Tower in Rhode Island. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this Newport Tower in Rhode Island, what it is, and what uh, Scott Walter is saying really about it. thinks it is, yeah, and and his theories behind this and his evidence or lack thereof of evidence of wh- how this Newport Tower really um, can or cannot, cannot tell us. Um, about the arrival of the Knights Templar in America, <laughs> which is kind of a whole interesting right. theory unto itself. And so um, so let's just start off, Nancy, by um, talking about, you know, answering my question about the runestones, and then we'll move to the, to the Newport Tower, maybe. Yeah, so okay. the runestone, it's interesting to me that in America Unearthed, he takes it out of this context in which it's known as being... Um, also already explained as a potential hoax or possibly entertained by some archaeologists as, well, what if it is Norse? What would we expect to see? And how might it relate to other evidence of Norse or Vikings in the Americas before Columbus? He seems to leave that behind and tie it to this idea that the Knights Templar came over to the Americas, which ties into a whole bigger theory that he has about the Knights Templar escaping with the Holy Grail and bringing it over to the Americas, thereby creating this idea that there must be um, a treasure, the Holy Grail Grail treasure somewhere in the Americas. So I think that's the big subtext. So he's taken the runestone and he's using it in a different way. But we already know that the same problems that exist with it being a Norse artifact 
definitely exist and even more so with it being a Knights Templar artifact. But he then moves to the Newport Tower, which is a structure in Rhode Island. It's a round structure. It's lovely. It has arches all the way around and then some windows and it it goes up and it looks like it's probably missing a, a roof, a top, a superstructure of some sort. So do you remember what Scott Walter theorizes that the Newport Tower is? Basically, he just theorizes that this is a church for the Knights Templar, that when the Knights Templar came over to America, they built this structure as a place to worship here in America. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, again, the Newport Tower was for a little bit thought maybe it was, again, a Norse intrusion into uh, this part of North America, actually on the American side rather than the Canadian side of North America. And then he uses it again as potentially being evidence for the Knights Templar. And why does he think it's evidence for the Knights Templar? Well, he needs evidence for the Knights Templar in America. And this is just as good as anything, I think. It's it's round. And <laughs> yeah, he says, yeah. oh, yeah. they were making round churches at that point, And mm-hmm. oh, it has arches and there's keystones in them. And the thing is, mm-hmm. none of those things are specific to the Knights Templar. This is a well-known way of engineering around building should you want to make one and if you're making archways to have a keystone at the top so none of those Mm -hmm. things are specific to the Knights Templar and so that's what the whole episode is kind of about is trying to figure out some some specific things in this tower that he could then relate to the Knights Templar. So he goes through this whole series. So what are one of the things (laughs) that he tries to do? So he tries to use some archaeoastronomy to prove that uh, this tower has that relation to the Knights Templar. And so he does that by looking at some of the window holes. So on the top of the structure, kind of around the, the top, there are these holes that um, the other gentleman that's there, who's kind of the curator of the Newport Tower, says are window holes. And he said, well, let's look at them and see if Venus, the light of Venus, will shine through one of these holes. And, you know, so he's looking at kind of the light coming in and, and why, where it's why glancing Why is he interested in the light one of, of these, Venus? Too. One of these niches. Yeah. yeah. So the the Venus connection is that he, he says that uh, the Knights Templar are very um, honorific of the goddess Venus and their, con- their connection with um, women. And he proposes that the Knights Templar were um, proponents of women and women's equality. And so, and that's kind of the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> so, I'm not sure. I'm going to look more into that. I, that, that. I don't know where that you read that. really that's, interesting. Yeah. Mm, that and, might and be it, another episode. Yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, he kind of goes through this whole archaeoastronomy piece of this um of this this part of the show and he's trying to see if venus the light of venus comes in and hits this niche that is in the top part of this um also he he comes back on uh this the solstice the winter the solstice, winter solstice right. to see if light shines in in certain spots which that's all really interesting but um the way that he does it is not very scientific at all it's it's just kind of um sh- let's see what happens let's just Let's shine some laser lights through these holes and see what what you know designs they make. And so it was laser lights and fog. So archaeoastronomy is amazing, yeah, and it, and it it's is. wonderful. And there are so many ancient yeah. alignments in so many structures. 
And and actually, it's not even that hard to find them when they are there. I mean, right. we have them in Chaco Canyon. We have them in Stonehenge. We have them at Newgrange. We have them so many places. That's, that's fascinating. And often they do revolve around the solstice or the equinox. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps there are also star alignments, and I think maybe some more complicated alignments at places. We have these things all throughout Central and South America, pretty much anywhere around the world. People were so aware of the night sky and the movements of the sun and the moon. That being said, um, we don't really know that the Knights Templar had any particular reverence for Venus. He was tying it to Mary and their mm-hmm. reverence for women. So first of all, that's a bit of a stretch. Second of all, why they would have built this structure to capture the light of Venus in particular. They went to great pains to say, you know, there's light pollution now, but I don't know that the light of Venus would have ever been strong enough yeah. to shine through a window. I mean, right. moonlight even itself on a full moon, yes, okay, maybe that'll cast a shadow. But to have the light of Venus, I I find that really hard to believe. But then what he does to try to demonstrate is he just takes two windows that are on opposite parts of the structure, and he shines a light through them. So they hit the other wall where it niches. He points it at the niche. And by doing that from both holes across, you're naturally going to have those laser light beams cross over one another and make... um, an X. And so he, this seems to be very significant to him, but any two lines that are going to be shot across <laughs> around structure are going to cross in mm-hmm. some way and make an X. Mm-hmm. So to him, that stands for something important, and the Knights Templar were doing this. But you never would have had light coming through those two windows at the same time, because he talks about them being at different solstices and w- the light coming up and the light going down. So yeah. you never would have had that X actually visible with beams of light. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Okay, so that's one part of what he was doing there. There's another element that he looked at. Do you remember the stone that he says he finds that he thinks is significant in in the structure? Yeah. So there's this stone that's a magnetic stone, and the name of it is Cumberlite. Yeah, Cumberlandite. Cumberlandite. And so... so there are there is one of those stones within this tower, and so he he has a, a theory about the stone and what the stone means within this tower, and the connection again to um, Venus and to um, a lot of different things. And so, it but it's really interesting to me that he is he's throwing these he's proposing theories he's throwing these theories out he's testing these theories, but within the show none of the theories pan out. <laughs> And none of the, but then, but then at the end of the show, he does say, "Well, this proves that the Knights Templar were in America." So it's so fascinating to me that he's somewhat using scientific theory and scientific means, but he, but he proves himself wrong and then moves forward and says that this is evidence. He, so can you he, speak to that a little bit? Yeah, Nancy? I think it's fascinating too that he he doesn't actually find evidence for these light beams coming across from Venus, even when he finally gets a clear day, he finds some stone that's um, magnetic, but then goes to a place where that stone naturally occurs on the surface, but doesn't really, there's no reason why those things would be connected. And there's no essential reason presented why they would be connected to Venus or Venus to the Knights Templar. So there's this tenuous thing. But as then you say, when he tries to actually show you these measurements, that doesn't even work. But the power of somebody just telling you over and over again, 
if I see this, then this, and this mm-hmm. means the Knights Templar, it becomes, it feels very convincing. Right. And it feels exciting. And I think the most important part of what he does is say, this is a symbol hidden in plain sight that has been overlooked by other people. So one of the other things he looks at is the the shape of the keystone in the archway, that it is a keystone shape that Freemasons would have used, and Freemasons were connected to the Knights Templar and grew out of that. And then this is a hidden symbol, and experts and archaeologists um, just have not looked at this, or they have not wanted to because it doesn't fit their existing theories. So that's something that is another strategy for persuasion that's often used in all of the History Channel things where there aren't experts. Instead of asking an expert, they say experts haven't looked at this or experts have already made up their mind that something else is true and so they won't listen to me. What's fascinating is Scott Walter has ignored and never brought up in there that there have been archaeological investigations. So he says, why aren't archaeologists looking at this? Yeah, so I was wondering that the whole time I was watching the show and wondering, you know, there must have been people doing research on this this tower because it is it's very intriguing looking and it's it's obviously very old so there had to be some research done and so nancy there and there was and there was (laughs) so can you tell us a little bit about the research that's been done on this on this newport tower yes so it's not that hard to find and again in in the book by kenneth fader um you know he's pulled together the research that has been done so there's been archaeological investigations within and around the tower since the late 1940s, and they were published in 1951. Godfrey published in 1951. You can find and go read these uh, reports that are published in peer-reviewed journals. And the excavations also um, recovered artifacts from within the tower itself, from beneath the floor, and from the surrounding areas. And those were looked at and published on in 1997. And so this is what they found, that um, there's historical as well as archaeological evidence that the tower was built by the governor of Rhode Island, who was named Benedict Arnold. He is the grandfather of the Benedict Arnold we know better as the traitor. In 1632, likely, it is a windmill that he would have constructed on his property. And it turns out that Benedict Arnold grew up in Chesterton, England. And in that area, there is almost the identical base of a windmill constructed there. Now, the excavations showed that there were um, colonial artifacts, uh, nails and bits of uh, clay pipe with tobacco in them, all sorts of other Um, artifacts dating to uh, the 1600s and the 1700s. And then two more things. When they went underneath the foundation, they actually found the impression of a boot print Mm -hmm. on um, the remaining um, subsurface. And it would have fit exactly a colonial boot. And then they radiocarbon dated 
the lime mortar, and that dated to the 1600s. So there's plenty of, of archaeological evidence, scientific evidence, the radiocarbon dates that date this structure, as well as historical information, mm-hmm. and a really logical ex- explanation of why this structure looks the way it does, why it was built there, and how it functioned. So it's super fun to think about those things, yeah. but not to address the existing data or even discuss why that might not be right and why this might be earlier. Um, Scott Walter really discredits himself, and he wants to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. So yeah. it's really a disservice to the viewers, yeah. um, even and, even though he's fun to listen to. Right, and on all these shows, you know, they that is that is often what happens is that there has been research done, there has been papers written, books written, but they are just discounted or or never brought into the discussion on the show. Um, and so I think that that's really an interesting thing to make clear. And of course, in the show, he says um, that archaeologists and historians just don't even want to look at this site, right. <laughs> which is obviously not true. So um, they've so been looking at it long before it he came along. Yeah. yeah, I mean, his whole thing was like, well, there isn't quite an alignment. And so with Venus coming through this, so 500 years, the Earth has shifted on it. He goes yeah. to great, yeah. jumps through lots of hoops to explain why his proof um, even though it didn't work, is still proof, rather than refuting actual evidence that exists about what it is. Um, and as we said, you know, as much as people love to talk about the Freemasons as some kind of secret organization and group like a Dan Brown novel, um, the Freemasons put their symbols on everything that they built. Yeah. They wanted everybody to know. They might not have let everybody inside, but they they were not hiding symbols in plain sight. No, so no, that and, also doesn't ring true. No. And, you know, we, we've visited with a few Masons over the years. And Nancy, you and I were taken on a tour of a Masonic Hall in Virginia City, Montana. And we asked him, we said, well, what, what's, what are the secrets of the Masons? And he said that the Masons have no secrets. Well, he said they do have a secret handshake, but that's about it. (laughs) That was the only thing we didn't (laughs) get to learn. Yeah. And he said, we will tell you everything and anything because we want people to know about the Masonic order and what the Masons do. And so, um, you know, there's, there's all these shows about the secrets of the Masons and that's just, it's just not true. Um, they, they, like you said, their symbols are right out there and they explain what their they're symbols right are. They're, they're right on our currency. They're right on everything. They're, they're every everywhere. Yeah, that yeah. They have, they're so. they're on the Statue of Liberty, as yeah, you pointed out. Yeah. So it's not a big secret. <laughs> right, right. Um, so we'll take a quick station break and then we'll go on and talk some more. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're talking today about the History Channel series, America Unearthed, and the mythology and true archaeology surrounding reports of runestones, Vikings, and even the Knights Templar in the Americas. So um, all this talk about people that we have no evidence were really here, like the Knights Templar. Um, but let's get back and talk a little bit about the Vikings, um, because we do have some historical and archaeological evidence that they were in the Americas before Columbus. Right, Nancy? We actually do. And that's what's so um, fascinating to me that gets completely ignored is that I bet Scott Walter could do a really good job making a story about the real evidence for Vikings in the Americas interesting. Um, he certainly has a flair for the dramatic. Um, so one of the archaeological sites that is the best well-known among archaeologists for evidence that the Vikings were here um, 
is a site in Newfoundland called, and I, I probably am going to butcher this because I don't speak French, Lance en Meadows. What we know from Viking sagas, and this is what's, again, very interesting, is that we like to talk about, number one, context, and number two, convergence of evidence. So whenever someone tells you something about aliens or somebody being in the Americas early or something, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, who's telling me? Are they motivated by money? (laughs) (laughs) And second, what are the lines of evidence to support this? And are they truly lines of evidence that that work, Mm -hmm. unlike some of the things we saw at the Newport Tower? Mm -hmm. So we have the Viking sagas, which were oral histories about Vikings going out and colonizing different places, interacting with different people, stories of Eric the Red and all these other folks. And we have one story that talks about um, the founding of Greenland in the late 900s. And there was one man who, who had sailed over with some Vikings who got a little lost on his way to the Greenland colony, and he, and he thinks he saw some other lands over to the west. So when he comes and finally gets to Greenland and, and tells folks about it, Leif Erikson, who is the son of Eric the Red in AD 1000, according to the sagas, sails west, and he goes looking for new lands. And when he comes back, he describes three places that he visited, Helleland, Markland and Vinland. And these three different places, one is a flat land, a flat stone land, Helleland, Markland is a forested land, and Vinland is described as this place. It's wineland. It's this place of meadows and, and wild grapes growing and, and kind of all these riches and a great place to start another colony. So um, he then has uh, uh, someone back in Greenland who says, well, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to head over there, and I'm going to go ahead and give it a go. So um, Thorfinn goes out in AD 22 and attempts to colonize Vinland. And even according to the sagas, they only last a year. They talk about a group called the the Skraelings, which is a, a negative term to describe what we assume are Native Americans living on the lands who were very hostile to the intrusion of the Vikings to come and settle this part of what is now Newfoundland, but what was their territory. So we have that story, right? So there's a lot about the Viking stories. Some of it is myth, and some of it really rings true. We have these early settlements in Greenland and Iceland. So we had archaeologists going out um, and amateurs looking for what might have been Vinland, where they set up this colony. And a lot of people thought, well, if we look at the way people would have sailed and where they would have stopped, um, this part of Newfoundland seems like this would be where they would settle. And sure enough, um, in the 1960s, they found the site of um, Lance aux Meadows. And what's fascinating is this particular site has the turf houses laid out exactly as Norse were laying them out in Iceland and on Greenland. Um, they found both Norse artifacts um, and Native American artifacts at the site, so they would have been doing some trading. Um, and it's surrounded um, uh, by other structures, some of which would have housed their boats. You see that they brought over animals and they were butchering them. So you see all of the whole trappings of that Viking lifestyle, everything you would have need to set up a colony 
is there. And then they're not obliterating themselves when they leave. Like they make a go of it. And so that stuff is left behind. The remains of their food, the remains of their fires, the fuel they used, the remains of their turf houses, all of that is there as evidence. And when we radiocarbon dated materials left behind at that site, it, it plus or minus dates from about the 900s to the 1000s. So it, it actually lines up very well with the Viking sagas. Yeah. And that's what archaeologists often look for, is those th- those basic needs, those things that you would need to basically live. Um, remains of food, remains of shelter, uh, remains of, of life, basically. So, yeah, and that's, and, and that's what and materials found. they use to yeah. make tools, the different type of metallurgy, and actually even um, raw material for stone artifacts that was coming from Greenland and Iceland and is not a source that's found anywhere in Newfoundland or locally. So you you clearly have items that are being brought over and then not just traded on the coast, you actually have a whole physical site that conforms really well in every way, culturally speaking, to what Vikings would have built. Mm -hmm. So that convergence of evidence is there and, um, and the dating lines up as well. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, I mean, that's exciting. They came over, they tried to make it, they couldn't make it, you know, so that's fascinating. Um, And there may be a few other Norse settlements that we don't know about, maybe in other parts of Newfoundland, there's Mm -hmm. a couple of people using satellite imagery to look and see if they can see remains of these turf house settlements oh, yeah. in other parts of Newfoundland. Because there, there's very much a pattern to those. And so, that, of course, that's another thing we look for is patterns. And so if you're looking for one of these settlements, you look to the others to see how they would build a settlement. And they're very similar. They're all very similar. So you can really tell that this, okay, this is a settlement. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So another good example of what you would find and what you would expect to find if you did indeed have the Knights Templar come to the Americas or if you had the Norse make it all the way into Minnesota to make that runestone. We have other examples of um, Hernan de Soto when he did the first exploration up through Florida, through southeastern United States. We had journals um, kept by him as well as members of the expedition. We have descriptions of uh, what they took along with them and the places that they visited. And so with those historical documents, archaeologists have gone out and looked to see if they could find the places that they camped, places that they stayed with certain tribes who were there at the time, because we're talking the 1500s. And at those places, we find little bits of chain mail. Mm. We find certain types of beads that were only made in Spain at the time, Mm -hmm. Um, Venetian glass, things like that that were left behind that were very specific to European contexts that could have only come over um, if there was trade, but then we also see, you know, evidence of actually camp, and then we see Hernando Soto, you know, bringing some of these things from one place to another and leaving them behind. Mm-hmm. So we have good evidence of where his travels would have been and and where they stopped along the way, and that they were bringing horses, and we have mm-hmm. horse bones left yeah, behind, which yeah. he didn't have before. So we have, again, convergent lines of evidence. So yeah. Being both the archaeological and the documentary um, with the with those diaries and those yes. you know, documents that they had for the shipping and all those sorts of things, they Absolutely. all line up together. So when people talk about things like... Um, a Sumerian cuneiform tablet that Chief Joseph had and then gave as a gift. 
um, which ended up then in a museum on the East Coast. Um, you find a lot of this also discussed again on the internet, and it's it's being used as evidence that we had Mesopotamians, maybe lost tribes of Israel, come early to the Americas and settle and contribute knowledge to Native Americans. And number one, that's insulting to the achievements of peoples of the Americas and everything that they achieved um, in their own cultural traditions here. Mm-hmm. And number two, there's so many other ways that if this artifact really was in the possession of Chief Joseph, which we only have um, hearsay mm-hmm. historical evidence for, we don't have really good, clear documentary evidence of, mm-hmm. um, There is that's it. We have nothing else except one artifact that's written on you would see I mean in Mesopotamia when they're using cuneiform writing on clay tablets they have amazing technologies and metallurgy and very different types of pottery and clothing and foods that they eat and that we wouldn't find any trail into North America where these items would have come along Um, and it's not that archaeologists aren't looking and it's not that archaeologists don't want to believe it because it goes against what they think they know. I think they would be the first ones to publish evidence right. of Mesopotamian site intrusion in the Americas. Because <laughs> then be, your National is, Geographic yeah. is throwing money yeah. at you, <laughs> right. and that's what you want. Yeah. I mean, geez, you know, look yeah. at, like, these new hominids found in South Africa. Lee Berger, like, he can't even spend all the money National Geographic is giving him, right. Right. you know. And it's like, and he didn't make up those fossils, but no one could have ever predicted something like Homo naledi, this, this tall, upright, walking thing with a tiny brain. Like, what is that? Yeah. So, no, I think we're always open as long as the evidence is there. But one artifact and the hearsay story about it does not make um, a a story, a whole story that we should go out to the public. And that gets to this bigger question that Fader and others ask is that, you know, who manages our understanding of the past? Do we leave it to popular impressions of what we think is fun to think about? Or do we actually want to believe that we have people who have expertise who can sort out what is actually enough evidence to say, yes, this happened in the past, from no, that is not enough evidence to say that that happened in the past? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and do we have something against anybody with expertise, which is what it seems to be Scott Walter. That's one of the lines of of persuasion that he uses in, in his, and he's not the only one right, who right. uses that critique of anybody who has any expertise or maybe even who's considered a scholar. Yeah, he calls them the academics. <laughs> right, so, lumps us all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, he, he really disparages the um, the academics who who have looked at these places before. And, and those are just the experts. Those are the people who have devoted their lives to learning about this time period or this place, these places. And so they have a lot of knowledge. We should not discount the experts and the academics and the professionals who do this as a living. I mean, you don't want to go on an airplane with someone who's like, I've read a lot about flying. I think I can do it. You know, you really want somebody who's 
gone through the training and is certified to be able to fly that craft you're getting in. Why would we be any different with any other aspect of expertise, whether it's medical or anything, right? right, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's what we're trying to do here is we're really trying to um, speak to um, these methods of persuasion that are on these um, History Channel shows, but you know we're picking on the History Channel. But of course, you see them anywhere mm-hmm. on television or on Netflix or whatever. You know, however you're watching your your content, and so we just want you to be leery of these and think a little bit when you're watching these shows. Don't just be um, pulled in by the treasure hunting aspect of them. We want you to think about these things we've talked about, for example, the expert, you know, is this expert really an expert? Or are they just, you know, some guy off the street who's saying, yeah, that sounds good to me, you know, and and who's excited about being on TV, you know, exactly. I always um, tell my students in the beginning of the course that I teach that I was completely taken in by what I thought was a documentary about how the moon landing was fake. Oh, yeah. And how the whole thing was faked, and you could tell from the photographs and the angles of the lights, and the whole thing was staged. It was done in a studio. And I was completely hooked Mm -hmm. and persuaded, and I thought, wow, for the first time I really thought maybe the government is really putting this over on us. Okay, I had no idea who was really doing the talking and what, and only later, once I started realizing, oh, people have titles for a reason, and people are oversimplifying this, and so they're making an argument about that, and it took a long time before I understood there's actually kind of like a little a little list of things you can look for and ask yourself to determine, is this a credible source? And really, that's what we want to find out, right? Are we learning yeah. this information from a credible source? Should I believe it and tell someone about it? Or should I look for a little bit more information? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what are some of those other meth- methods of persuasion that we see that you need to dig a little deeper into and, and better understand yeah. and be leery of and watch for when you're watching... You know, I'm using air quotes, documentaries. Air quote documentaries, yeah. (laughs) Things that are documentary style. And I think that's what we should call is this documentary style itself is is a persuasive um, method. So I'm going to go through these and just interrupt if you think you recognized some from the episode you watched of America Unearthed. Okay. So in these um, documentaries, these uh, purported documentaries, they present factual data alongside unsupported speculation and act as if they're equivalent. So sometimes mm-hmm. they will tell you runes, the Norse used runes, and they and they use these runes to communicate in, in this type of way, and they, they made, um, they would carve them into rocks, and they would make monuments out of them, and they would put their sagas in these runes. And then they tell you some information about the Kensington runestone that's completely speculative about how old it is and where it was found. So they will give you um, factual data with unsupported data. but And by doing that, it, it seems as if they're telling all you factual. it's all factual, yeah. right? So you yeah. whitewash that. Okay. And that goes along with this narration style in these type of pseudo documentaries where they're very authoritative. Mm. I think Scott Walter does an amazing job sounding like an authority. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in the way he presents it. And he says things multiple times. Mm -hmm. He says, and if we see this, then this is going to prove this. And then even though they didn't see it, he'll say, well, you know, the earth has changed on its axis or this didn't line up, but this, I mean, but this proves that the Knights Templar built this Tower. When really we have actually existing evidence over here that isn't. So just being authoritative 
we're used to people only speaking to us that way if they're sure that what they're saying is true. Mm-hmm. I think even archaeologists are less authoritative in the way they speak because we always know there's more to be found out. Yeah, there's always more. And and if you and you don't want to say something authoritatively because tomorrow new evidence could be found that would totally change the way you think about something. And so sometimes that makes us sound a little bit less sure than someone like Scott Walter. So that's something to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like with the factual data, expert and non-expert credentials are presented as equivalent. So again, Mm -hmm. look very closely at the title they give somebody under their name when they present them. And a lot of times it's just author or you know, metal detector expert, things that aren't even a real thing, something Mm -hmm. that you couldn't get a degree in. He calls himself a forensic geologist. Just, it's easy enough to get online and Google that and do a little spot fact checking yourself as you're watching. Yeah. Um, Here's a big one. The portrayal of scientists and academics as skeptics and dismissive of credible theories of Mm -hmm. anybody who is amateur or not an expert in their field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, I think, is a big one. It's a big red flag. If you're presenting information, you don't need to be talking down about experts. And again, it's just experts in general. They don't actually approach any specific archaeologist and ask, do you believe in this? Why don't you? They, They pull off another... Um, sort of amateur, the curator at that Newport Museum, and and he is not an expert in the archaeology, and neither of them mention the research that has actually been physically done on the Newport Tower. Mm -hmm. But portraying them as skeptics, um, that is such a standard way to hook a viewer in and make them think that, oh, the skeptics don't, that the experts don't know what they're talking about. They're missing all of these things that are hidden in plain sight. Um, Academics are really looking hard for good stories and good research. They're going to be the first to try to take credit for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't paint experts as both like backstabbers, stealing stories, and as skeptics. It doesn't work. And also trying to hide information. So that's another big part of um, what they always say is that academics are trying to hide information from the public so the public doesn't know. And that's the exact opposite of what an academic is doing this work for. Of course, they're doing the work to better inform the public about the past, about what happened. And that is their, their, um, that is what they do. That is their ethic. And so, um, so I think that that Mm -hmm. is, um, when you hear that, you know, always be careful when you hear that academics are trying to hide information. I don't know any academics that are trying to hide information. (laughs) I think they're working hard to get what they can out there because they don't have a job if they don't get the information out. So that's strange. Um, Proposing hidden codes and meanings, using intrigue about hidden treasure, all of those things, again, if somebody's talking to you in that excited way about there's a mystery and we're going to solve it or we're going to find the treasure, again, usually a red flag that you're not really dealing with credible information. You're letting your enthusiasm for the treasure hunt or the discovery of some hidden meaning to um, override any other logical links in in what factual information you actually have. Mm-hmm. Um, also, and um, finally, I would say posing questions. The questions that they pose often 
make people think, well, no one ever said that the Knights Templar didn't come to America. So one of the things they did in America Unearthed in a subsequent episode is this one prince of this family that was known to have a temple that dates around the time of the end of the Knights Templar, who was a European family. Um, One son seems to fall out of their historic records, and nobody knows where he's buried or what happened to him. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, because he's no one knows where he is or where he's buried, I mean, it seems likely that he came to the Americas. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he brought the Knights Templar's Holy Grail here. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a big leap to say, because we don't know where something is, then it seems like he went to America. So using no evidence as a way to propose speculation and mm-hmm. then jump on that as if then now you've solved it and it's true, this prince came to the Americas. So there's a lot of those um, proposal of questions that, that are like, I love that South Park did a spinoff <laughs> on the History Channel and yeah. all the persuasive techniques they use. Yeah. And they, they did a great one. I actually use it to teach stuff in my class. But they mm-hmm. wanted to write a story about how aliens were at the first Thanksgiving in the oh. Americas. And, you know, so they'll say things, well, no one ever said aliens weren't at the first Thanksgiving. So therefore, <laughs> it's likely they could have been. Yeah. And so clearly we can see when in that satire that mm-hmm. that doesn't work. However, it's a little more subtle when it happens yeah. on um, on America unearthed. So red flags, lots of questions, red flags. Archaeologists are trying to give you information and they'll tell you, here's what we don't know. And the questions they pose are questions for future research. They're not questions that say, well, if we don't know that, it could be that aliens were here. You know, that's not the way we go with it. Yeah. Oh, that's all very good. So look at these shows with a new eye. Do your research before you dive in and and get super excited about these treasures, about these theories, about these ideas. Um, do your research and better understand the evidence that's um, given before you do that. So, Nancy, we could talk about so much more <laughs> with this. <laughs> we could just keep going and going. And maybe we'll do another one of these. There's a lot of History Channel another, out there. Yep. Yeah, to debunk <laughs> another um, Mystery Channel show. But um, but this, this was really important to us because we we deal with this a lot as these shows are becoming more and more uh, popular and there's becoming more and more of them so you know people will come up and say something like well you know that runestone evidence really shows that <laughs> and we're like okay let's back it up just a bit <laughs> absolutely um, well we hope to do a couple more of these in the future and we'd love to have some feedback from everybody and I think it's actually more fun to watch these sort yeah. of documentary style or pseudo documentary things when you're looking for what are the techniques they're using to be persuasive. Um, And mostly they don't involve experts with real degrees from universities. Um, So thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. And if you like this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up on your podcast feed each week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So thanks for joining us today and listening. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt dirt on on the the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to John Chadwell for helping get the podcast out in the world. 